While God created the world, the morning stars sang together. After God delivered Israel through the Red Sea, Moses and Miriam led the people in singing. God destroyed Israel's enemies under King Jehoshaphat while the choir sang. When Jesus was born, the angels sang, and before going to the cross, he sang. God rejoices over us with singing, and one of the only things we know for certain that everyone will be doing in heaven is singing. At New St. Andrews College, we understand that music is not an elective. It is central to our being and identity. We endeavor to train all our students in a joyful and robust musical literacy that will help them shape culture in a Christ-like direction wherever they go. Additionally, we offer the Certificate of Music in conjunction with our bachelor's degree in liberal arts and culture for students who desire extra music training beyond the regular music courses they will take as a part of the core curriculum. In the certificate program, you won't simply appreciate music or listen to it or talk about it. You will do music. You will study it, analyze it, read it, write it, sing it, and play it. You will receive private instruction in your primary instrument as well as secondary lessons in voice, piano, conducting, and other instruments. You will receive a solid foundation in music theory and analysis. You will study music history, church music, and music pedagogy. And when you graduate, you will leave with the ability to sing, play, understand, and steward music in whatever church or community you plant yourself. I'm Dr. David Erb, and this is the Certificate of Music at New St. Andrews College. Hey, y'all, welcome to Cross Politic Live in Wenatchee. Very good. Yes. Man, whoa. It, it's whoa. good to be with you. I'm East glad Wenatchee. you guys made it to the third uh, location. This is our third location. Yep. It's kind of where's Waldo? You went to the first location, we weren't there. You went to the second location, Seventh day Adventist, weren't there. And then here. So we want to thank uh, um, East Wenatchee, East Wenatchee First Baptist Church. Is it for, is it First Baptist or just Baptist? Okay. Yeah. It's just another sign that Cross Politic loves Baptists. <laughs> I don't know what people are worried about. So that that actually intro music um, was created by one of our interns when we started Cross Politic in 2016. If you guys hear John Piper in there and some others, uh, Doug yeah. in there, Toby, it's yeah. it's kind of fun to to, to wow. listen to it. And when we started Cross Politic off uh, back in 2016, the whole goal of what we were trying to do is we wanted to specifically proclaim the Lordship of Jesus Christ into politics. And that happened in 2016, and we actually started CrossPolitik in September 2016, and then God gave us Trump in November, um, which Just, was a, 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 a good time which, to start. Which we a, took as so a sign. You, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> and none of us voted for Trump in, in November. Uh, I, I know I didn't. I don't know if Toby did. but no. um, and, and, then, you know, and then 2020 happened. I remember I said this in my talk earlier uh, today. Uh, Nate, Doug's, Doug's son, came on our show about three to six months. I can't remember the exact time. Three to six months before COVID happened in March 2020. And Nate said on our show, he said, I don't know what's going to happen, but it's going to get crazier. And I remember thinking, man, it's been crazy since Trump's been elected. I mean, it's, it, how could it get crazier? And and Nate was just basing everything off of, you know, pride comes before a fall. Actually, and, yeah. And, it, and, and, he's, and he said, Trump, he's, 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 pr- he's proud. Proud and he's going to fall. So something's going to get crazy. Yeah. So Nate was kind of reading the tea leaves on this proverb and, and then COVID came in 2020 and a lot of us and Trump appointed Fauci. Well, Fauci was already there. <laughs> He'd been there for 30 years. Started listening to him. 
And, and a lot of us, I, 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 you know, 2020 COVID hit us mostly like, like a brick wall. It was like, what just, what just happened? And it, you know, where did the COVID tyranny come from? You know, a lot of people were asking about where the COVID actually came from. You know, the Wuhan lab, we all know that, right? <laughs> um, but where did the COVID tyranny come from is the bigger question. But even then, that's like asking, you know, uh, you know, how did the lipstick get on the pig? You know, they're, they're, the COVID, work with me on this analogy, all right? As, the as, lipstick's COVID, okay? And the pig is, you know, big education, big Eva, you know, big government. And, and we're sitting here talking about COVID tyranny, which we have to because it really did hit us like, like a brick wall. Has Gabe mentioned that he's from Texas? I, that, those are my, someday Toby wants me to write a book of metaphor, Gabe Wrench metaphors. Yes. They, they never really work out, but everyone still follows them. So, <laughs> all right, where are we at? So, um, so, but, but I think a lot of people don't understand the connection between, okay, so the topic of the show tonight is, is big, big COVID, big education, and big EVA. And we don't understand kind of the connection between how we got COVID tyranny and what actually education and the church had been doing in the last, let's say, 20 to 40 years, even longer than that, to be able to kind of um, disciple us or con- at least condition us to be in a situation where we don't know how to process 2020, government overreach, tyranny, churches shutting down, and all these various problems that popped up in, in 2020. So we want to trace how we got there, make us all nice and depressed, remembering <laughs> how awful it is. But it's actually, the point of it is to turn the corner and say, actually, if education and the church have been major players in getting us into this mess, then it's actually right at our fingertips to get right back to work and turn the thing around. Um, so that's, that's where we're going, and you can tell us afterwards whether we did a good job uh, getting there. So uh, we want to start off with you, Doug, tonight. Um, you know, COVID tyranny. It didn't come out of nowhere. The lipstick on the pig didn't come off, didn't get on there, just, you know, <laughs> randomly. Which, which is the pig again? <laughs> <laughs> COVID's the lipstick, all right. Um, you know, the COVID, the COVID tyranny didn't come out of nowhere. So looking back, what are some of the key decisions or, or events with, uh, regarding our civil government or, that kind of got us to this moment of being able to take COVID tyranny without so, resisting? Yeah, so one of the things to realize, middle of all this, is that all the players, all the people making decisions, all the people applying restrictions, all of them were educated somewhere. All of them came out of a particular That's right. of training and teaching. And then you have to ask, well, what, what was that system of education geared to do? What were they trying to produce? Mm-hmm. So all of our problems ultimately go back to Adam, right? But mm-hmm. uh, I, would, I would trace this particular problem Back to John Dewey. Okay. All right. John Dewey was an education reformer, reformer, scare quotes, in the early part of the 20th. Get that microphone close to your mouth just so it's more consistent. Kind of like a rock star. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. How about a crooner? How about a crooner? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So uh, John Dewey was an educational theorist and, and reformer in the early part of the 20th century. And one of his goals, not the only one, but one of his goals was the socialization of the student. 
So in the older system of education, when you taught a kid to read and you taught a kid to think, he had access to the library and he could go anywhere. And it was hard for the socialists to keep track of him because he could go anywhere, think all sorts of thoughts. And John Dewey wanted um, the schools to be more like factories of knowledge. And so the factories of knowledge would turn out uh, cogs that would be suitable for use in the, in the machine, in the industrial machine. And that was one of his goals. And that's why, down to the present, if a family starts homeschooling, for example, one of the standard objections is, what about socialization? Right? Uh, by which now we mean adept at drug deals in the hallway and, and uh, you know, talking uh, about sexual yeah. orientation. Right. So, and, and now they feed us the library books, right? The porn, <laughs> pornification right. in our library and that. So what, what happened here is for the COVID lockdowns to work, you needed an extraordinarily docile population that would be willing to put up with a lot. And in order to get people to be docile like that, you have to have a lot of training. You have to spend 12 years or so learning how to sit in rows. And and there's a legitimate uh, sense of discipline. I'm a big fan of schools and discipline in schools. I don't have a problem with discipline. But the discipline in a Christian liberal arts setting is aimed at getting the students to learn how to think. And so that in, in such a way as that they're not dependent on you. The, the socialist system of education, which is what the government school is, is geared to, to creating a dependency that continues on after the student graduates. They want con- conforming, not thinking. They, they want conformity. They want docility. They want people who follow instructions. But John Dewey came from the 1800s, and we didn't lose prayer in school until the 1960s. Why? Uh, because it, the, America, in its founding, was deeply... Christian. It was not, we didn't have a formal establishment of religion. We didn't have an established state church, but we had, we were uh, deeply Christian at the founding. We had a handful of deists among the founders, and they were even quasi deists, men like Jefferson and Franklin. Um, Out of the 55 men at the Constitutional Convention, 50 of them were Orthodox Christians, Mm -hmm. and Jefferson wasn't even there. And uh, so in order to succeed in politics, you had to be a, a professing believer. Je- Jefferson had to hide his uh, deism. He, yeah. he had to hide his quasi-deism yeah. in, order to be, uh, in order to be elected. That o- robust sense of Christian identity continued well into the 19th century. Mm-hmm. And the population of America, we had Supreme Court decisions that declared that the United States was a Christian nation. Right. So there in was, the early 1900s, right? Like oh, yeah, 1910, down. 1920? Correct. And the other thing to keep in mind is that there were multiple state Supreme Court decisions right. prior to that that um, decided the same thing. And one of the things the war between the states did was flipped which courts were the senior one. Right. On religious matters, right. in the early part of the 1800s, the state Supreme Courts were senior on that issue. Huh. Right, and so the Supreme Court would defer to them, but then later, when it was up to the U.S. Supreme Court, they upheld that uh, that Christian ident- that Christian identity was very much uh, woven into the fabric of America. That meant 
the Unitarians and the unbelievers and the infidels had to play the long game. Right. Okay, so R.L. Dabney, who was um, a theologian, preacher, who died, I think, in 1899, mm-hmm. died before the 20th century. Sure. Yeah. Um, he said Christians then, he was opposing the government school system of the time. Right. They were just, just getting off the ground. And he said Christians then must prepare themselves for the following results. All Bibles, catechisms, and prayers will ultimately be driven out of the schools. Incredible. Why was he saying that? Well, because he saw the logic of the thing. The, so The, the int- logic of the system? The, well, the intellectual leadership of the public school system was Unitarian, unbelieving. It was an infidel movement. The local school boards were Protestant and evangelical. Right. So um, when we say that, I was, I remember in the government school system as a young boy, I remember the day starting with prayer. We were led in prayer to Almighty God by a government school employee. I remember that very distinctly. And and we talk about how prayer was taken out of the schools, but we never ask, how did prayer get into the schools in the first place? Right. <laughs> right. You know, what, when did that happen? Mm-hmm. Well, it was just part of the texture of American life. Right. You know, it was ju- it's just what you did. So when the Catholic, when the big Catholic immigration uh, happened in the mid-19th century, a number of Irish Catholics started coming into the country, and the Catholic Church formed the Catholic parochial school system. They did that not because the government schools were secular. They did that because the government schools were Protestant and evangelical. Right. They had Protestant Bible, the King James Bible. They had Protestant catechisms. Mm-hmm. So Dabney said catechisms will be driven out of the schools. <laughs> and we say there were catechisms in the schools? What's that? What's, what's, a, cate- yeah, what's yeah, a catechism? Yeah. <laughs> we, we don't have catechisms in church anymore. Uh, and yeah. the public, public school system had catechisms. Bibles, Bibles, catechisms, and prayers. And I remember the last of them. But that means... Right. so. Now, this doesn't mean that I think that tax-supported government education is a good idea, even if it's Christian. Right. But it's an undeniable fact that it was thoroughly Christian. And that means that Dewey and other people couldn't just show up and say, hey, let's do drag queens in the school library. Right. Because there, at the time, there would have been a, a massive revolt. Right. Uh, so they had to boil the frog slowly, yeah. which is precisely what they did. Ben, ben, same question. I actually just want to ask you. Um, what, what, you've been doing a lot of work kind of on a, a higher education and, and a number of things that have happened over the last number of years, um, decades, same kind of question, though. What got us to this point? Maybe um, looking at um, COVID in particular. Um, it, but Doug just said education has made us very docile. And his, uh, and his answer was okay, which is why we're asking you. And, I mean, you have um, a PhD. So, <laughs> yeah. uh, You're the one with a PhD. <laughs> From a government institution. <laughs> That's right. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> say which government? <laughs> um, foreign, foreign government. From the British government. <laughs> I, I, uh, a couple of things. First of all, um, you, you open with that comment about just the arrogance. And I think that um, the arrogance and the arrogance of knowledge is something that is has been, I think, really abused throughout all of this. So... When COVID first hit and we had that moment where the thing, the thing that sort of weaponized it and made it possible to be this, where we shut everything down and whatnot, was that moment where we projected out 
and said, um, here's what's going to happen six months, yeah. uh, 12 millions, months. Here's, millions, here's the millions yeah. of people that are going to die. The Imperial and College of London. And you remember that moment where, the, where there are all these projections, and these are projections without any, um, any actual verifiable evidence like at that moment. It's purely a computer projection. And when was the moment where we started um, believing in that kind of goofy science? Because we're told, you're, you're told by everybody, this is science. And like for you to push against this is for you to argue with science. Right. When did we start taking that as this, this um, sort of uh, science that you could not argue with? And it's funny because if you think about it for a moment and just kind of look back over our intellectual history, the kind of projections I think that we did with COVID, they look very similar to the same things that are being done with global warming and climate change. Right, right. And if you argue with that, you're a science denier. But go back all the way to the root of that. Honestly, I think you end with Darwin. Right. Yeah. When, when, did we, when did we start having this moment where we believed we could project out over millions and billions of years right. and, and not have any actual evidence, mm-hmm. but still with these projections make this sort of sweeping claim that everybody had to bow to, mm-hmm. and you're a science denier if you, if you disagree with it. Right. Honestly, I think that uh, Darwin was a big part of setting us up for where we are now and how COVID played out for us because we allowed that kind of goofy argument to go without right. the questioning it deserved. We we believed the pig with the lipstick could be evolve into a human. <laughs> back, we back we're not we're not going to. I tied it in. <laughs> we're not going to get in. that lipstick back in the tube, are we? <laughs> <laughs> Gonna be a long night. <laughs> so anyhow, so that, that's one piece. Um, I think another piece um, is the way we have um, the, the idea that education has been handed over to the government. I think is is really critical because what's happened is um, education has to be secularized as you have a more and more secularized government. If you have a government that does not recognize the lordship of Jesus Christ, it's a, it's got to be a secularized government. There's no way you can have an education system that answers to it. That's not going to be secularized, and I think the the place that the government um, school system really got in sort of in control of uh, the American public was this idea that you that education is your gateway to a career, and that you are all fundamentally about your yeah. career, right. about about your vocation, and just that word vocation I think is really interesting because um, originally that was actually a spiritual uh, had a spiritual meaning or connotation. Vocation was your calling in Christ. You are called. Vocation means to be called. You were called to serve Christ. That was your. That is your fundamental vocation. We've replaced this with the idea that you are fundamentally whatever your um, occupational identification is. Right. And that job. What's that? Yeah. Job. Your job. Your yeah. job. Your job is just who you are, and you exist to perform that job. And then once you once you believe that, and you believe that the school system is the one that. Um, certifies you in order to get that job, then basically the school system is your gateway for the rest of your life, that you you have to be a part of the system. So how do you get people to be docile the way uh, Doug is describing? Well, you tell them that if if you don't stand in line, if you don't um, get the right certificate, if you don't get the right degree and go through the right programs, you're going to be a barista for life, and you you won't have any... um, any opportunity to ha- have a real life. No offense, baristas. <laughs> so, <laughs> Unless it's your fault. <laughs> so I, I think that as, as schools, uh, as we've become to th- uh, begun to think of ourselves as fundamentally 
um, oriented towards our occupation and that's it, and not our calling in Christ, then your education is all about preparing you for that. And then what happens is when the government is in charge of funding that education. So K to 12, that's all um, the public schools funded by your local government. And then when you get to college, your college is funded by the federal government. Even if you're going to a private Christian school, if they're taking federal money, if they're taking student loans, if they're taking Pell Grants, the the biggest portion of their revenue and their budget is coming from the federal government. Right now at your, at your typical private Christian college, it... Um, Parents, paychecks from parents or tuition checks from parents, that is the smallest part of the revenue stream. Wow. The, the federal At a Christian government. college. Wow. At oh, a yeah, Christian abs- college. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like, like what, what percentage roughly in a budget? Um, it would be, so the, the, what would the parents or the federal government? Uh, what would the government's percentage be in that, that college's budget? So the, the typical student loan uh, for, I, I believe for a private Christian college, the typical Student loan is going to be about twelve thousand per year. If you get another, um, if you get a Pell grant on top of that, another yeah. four or five thousand for your Pell grant, you're looking at maybe seventeen thousand from the federal government. Your tuition starts. They'll say that it's thirty five thousand. The typical private Christian college will say your tuition is thirty five thousand. That's kind of a joke. Right. It doesn't actually exist. They're going to knock at least ten to fifteen thousand dollars off of that, and it's just a discount. It's not really a scholarship. They'll tell you it's one. Right. So, but that means that basically you've got maybe seventeen thousand coming from the federal government, and you've got maybe seven or eight thousand coming yeah. from mom, mom and dad. dad or tuition checks. Ben, you, uh, NSA, um, we, we forgot to introduce Doug and Ben. We did. You know, and you reminded uh, me and we forgot. I got yeah. so caught up we're on that amazing so, metaphor. Yeah. I the, forgot the, to the bring lipstick in. thing it, it got you thrown off. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Ben, you're the president of New St. Andrews College. If you didn't know that, he's the president of New St. Andrews College in Moscow, Idaho. And, um, NSA just recently, um, released an ad called Big Ed, I think. Right. Isn't that what it's called? Now, that, that's kind of what you're starting to talk about. Yeah. What, what, do we, what do you mean? What is NSA trying to identify in that? I remember there was like, were there kids with super soakers? And there's like... That's in one of them. Okay, yeah. or is that a different ad? I, yeah. They're all blending together. But what, what's the deal? What's the Big Ed? What are you going after? Well, we were taking the idea, um, really referring to that idea of the too big to fail. Um, so when you had, in various crises, you'll have various um, industries that they start to go down, and then the federal government, we say, it's they're too big to fail. We can't let them go down. Uh, and so the federal government has to swoop in yeah. and, and fund them and take over them. Bailouts. And, and what, yeah, it's a bailout, but... When you're on the other side of the bailout, what you notice is those institutions are never the same because the federal government now having bailed you out, uh, <laughs> there's some strings you got attached. A, you got a master now. Yeah, exactly. Man. And and we would argue that over the years, education has been becoming more and more big ed. And um, the student loan forgiveness, right? scare quotes around forgiveness. Oh, Biden's thing. Yes. Oh yeah. Is this is, this is the moment. This is the moment where basically, um, I think higher ed is getting completely taken over by the federal government because they are going to be funding it completely. Okay. Right. Okay. And, and and I think what, 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 one of the things that we don't realize here, one of, you know, when you fly in on an airplane, you don't, you, you start to, I think over time we start, I've started to realize about how much government has made that experience uncomfortable. You know, even just kind of going through TSA or even I was this last flight I was on with Toby and, and his wife. I was, we were back in the last seat of the plane. Seat. You're still, you're still kind of upset about that. Oh aren't man, you? I, I'm, I'm traumatized. 
I got claustrophobic back, back there. there. <laughs> but we're in seat 34C. I still remember it. I don't think any CEO from any airplane has ever flown in that, that seat. I just don't. He told, he told all the stewardesses about it all the way yeah. out. And then, and then the stewardess said, oh, that's funny. You should Google seat 34C. Yeah, there's a funny story about it, and so I Google it. So, yeah, yeah. anyways, it's the stewardess, all their pe- pilots know that yeah, seat 34 C is bad. Um, but but, the, but what's happened is is, is because there the was gov- a point to this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the government's just been involved in the airline and regulating the airline industry for so long. We actually don't know all the uncomfortable again. We've been measures. we've been groomed. We've been groomed that have but, come out of it. And the same thing with Big Ed. But no, notice mm-hmm. a, a corollary to this. We're now in the position where the federal government on virtually every college in North America, has a kill switch. Yeah. What, what do you mean, kill switch? They just turn off the tap. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if, if right. Stop if, sending the money, yeah. if, if, it's right. dead. That's right. If, if you uh, got uppity, if you violated mm-hmm. the policy, if mm-hmm. you said, uh, we're, going to, we're, we're going to have, uh, no, we're going to stand by God's creation order of male and female, mm-hmm. we're not going to do right. your bathroom thing, or what, whatever right. the crisis thing is, mm-hmm. right. in principle... Uh, if there was enough political will in Congress or the president wanted to just do an executive order, mm-hmm. he could just turn off the money to college X, Y, Z. Right. Well, that's when Obama was in office, I think it was right at the beginning of his second term, that's when all the colleges started getting these, they call them the Dear Colleague letters. You get this letter and it okay. starts off, Dear Colleague. Okay. And, um, and the Dear Colleague letters, I believe it was the beginning of his second term, they started going out, where what he did was he said, um, the Title IX money, uh, which is, uh, or Title IV money, I should say, which is Pell Grants and student loans, he, um, it's, it is governed by Title IX, and he took Title IX to apply to sexual identity right, as right, well. And so, which um, was not what is, even though it wasn't that great of a title, it still wasn't meant to apply no, to sexual right, identity. Right, exactly. Right. But, but he basically said this includes sexual identity. So that meant then that if you as a college were taking Pell Grants or federal student loans, that meant that you now could not uh, discriminate right. if against... A, if a boy w- thought he was a girl and wanted to go into girls' locker rooms. Right, yeah. Guys can go in the, sh- in the girls' shower, all of that. Right. Which, all is, of that. which is actually how colleges like Calvin College has... Um, tra- yeah. uh, uh, Sharing bathrooms, or yeah, so they call yeah, them. You, yeah, you'll see right off all the yep. colleges are trying to figure out how to back away from certain statements because they got to keep that money, that money. flowing. Right. They 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 don't want to lose that money. It would it would shut the right. school down. And back to your point about the kill switch, Doug, is that um, if we don't see this happening, we're crazy because the whole the whole setup, like with the January sixth hearings and all the stuff, is to lump anybody together. I mean, if if you ever tweeted anything friendly. Semi positive about President Trump, um, or whatever, or you even said you love America, probably. You're a hard right extremist. Well, Elon Musk. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're, you're practically a terrorist yeah. now. Yeah. And so, you know, uh, it, it's not a step, it's not a big step at all to say this college is a threat to democracy. Uh, democracy. <laughs> they're, they're teaching, you know, they're a bunch of Christian nationalists. And now, and now you're and now you're an extremist. Now you're turning out terrorists, a domestic terrorist. And I mean, that's already people have already been targeted by the IRS. And the only reason colleges will put up with that right. kind of treatment is because they're over a barrel. Right. Right. So in in other words, most uh, of their revenue comes from the federal the, government. The, in other words, they know who has the kill switch. And if the government is the colleges, the private Christian colleges are being gaslit. 
You're, you are the problem. You have problems with white supremacy. You are homophobic. You are this. And, and the colleges respond in a craven, crawling manner because they can't stand up and have a pitched battle because the government can just turn off the tap. Right. Uh, and, and so consequently, this is one of the reasons why I believe NSA is uniquely positioned to do some good and is also no doubt in the crosshairs. Right. Yeah, because we're not over a barrel right. in that same way at all. We're not beholden to any of that. Don't take it, government it, funding or any of that. It's almost like we're free. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a threat. And that's a threat. <laughs> well, that, that's I, I think that that's the ironic statement. I mean, I, I've I've been trying to work on rolling this argument out for a while, but I remember um, when uh, when Bernie Sanders was running Breadline in, Bernie. We yes. would call him Breadline, Breadline Bernie. Bernie. Yeah. What, what was it? Breadline Bernie. Breadline, Breadline Bernie. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, please. Because he thought breadlines were good. That's a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, he he also argued, you know, he, he wanted us to have free college. You know, free college. Right, right. <laughs> Sorry, it's, sorry, it's, Ben. I lost going, him for you. I lost him for you. <laughs> it's going downhill, isn't it? <laughs> Anyhow, yes. So he wanted he wanted free college for everyone, and I think that that's really interesting. You take that word free because, as an American, but particularly as a Christian, that right. word free should mean something, and it should mean right. something very profound. But he's chosen the, I think, the cheapest and smallest possible definition of that word free, that's which right. is I got to eat the pizza and sneak out without paying for it. Um, <laughs> And, and so, Tripology. <laughs> hey, look at but that. I think a, a truly a truly free college should be a college that is free from government entanglement, <laughs> free in terms of the kind of intellectual skills it gives you, and it should be a college that leaves you free in Christ, which is the ultimate Amen. freedom. Hey, Amen. where's the organ? Yeah. Give him the organ. <laughs> See. I don't know what I'm talking about. Chocolate Knox was quicker. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he also didn't talk about pigs with lipstick. <laughs> so I think there's more, though, been to the Big Ed thing that you, you've been developing. So you started off saying, you know, Big Ed is is um, part of kind of part of this industrial. Uh, one of the things that you said is Big Ed's part of kind of this becoming this like this industrial education complex. You know, we've seen this with the medical field. It, it's become this, you know, industrial medical complex. Um, I mean, I don't think there was a hospital. Even I think it was even last month, my, our my, my brother-in-law and sister-in-law were having a baby at our local hospital, and they were still requiring masks. Uh, you know, it was just it, such a disconnect. But it's like this this whole industrial kind of complex has taken over, and it's like you can't even reason with it anymore. Right. Well, you know, I, I, I don't feel yeah. like I can reason with the University of Idaho anymore. You know. Right. That's because uh, I think Doug said it at the beginning. They're not interested in teaching. Um, the intellectual skills of reason, logic. Um, they're not interested in that. They're interested in creating the cogs. And I think this is why making your college degree about getting you vocational certification is so critical for the strategy here. Because what they're, what they've turned a college education into is, um, basically certifiable skills that you know how to follow a certain process. Uh, I know how to use an Excel sheet. I know that, whatever. But they don't want you to be able to think. They don't want you to be able to argue. And all of that has really been removed from the college curriculum. And, and I think one of the challenges I think we're seeing in our society is the inability that, that, that's gotten deep into our society, not just in our education system, where I feel like I can't even have a reasonable conversation with a, a Democrat running for office. You know, I, I like I can't have a real reasonable debate or sit down. I mean, I, I ran for county commissioner, and I remember debating um, my opponent 
Tom Lamar about taxation, and I I got nowhere with them. I had I even had data from yeah. our local county with them, and I, I got nowhere. But it just seems like the whole dialogue in our society is like broken down. I thought it was really striking. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we did an event on on the University of Idaho campus with the Hale Institute mm. over yeah. uh, the question of uh, life after Roe, and so we've got two um, pro life uh, speakers on the stage right. and two pro choice people. And these, you know, we brought people that could honestly represent uh, that position in order to have. Of, uh, a dialogue and a conversation and I at thought, a national level like oh yeah they were, right and and the thing that was really striking was how um the audience was about 99 percent our church um you, <laughs> and, and it's on the u of i campus but mm. if you're going to have a dialogue which I has ten thousand people on that campus yeah they're, they're not interested in a conversation if if you said yeah. hey you could come and you could scream at people I think we would get a huge crowd. Yeah, they're, yeah, they're yeah. quite happy with that. But like, come and actually have a conversation. They don't know how to do that anymore. Ben, ridiculous. Ben, surely, surely there are still a lot of people on these university campuses, at least Christian colleges, that actually still want a place of learning. So, so you have the barrel that Doug's talking about that the administration and the staff is over, and they're mm-hmm. like. Um, you know, pulling the straitjacket tighter and tighter because of what co- is coming down from federal government. Talk about the talk about the inquiries you get. From- oh yeah, but yeah, I was just thinking. That. Yeah, but- I, there absolutely are because I get I get emails just regularly from faculty. Um, from other these other campuses asking for jobs at NSA yeah. because what are their names? <laughs> <laughs> there, there are a lot of them that are looking for a chance to actually be what a college professor was supposed wow. to be, yeah. but the administrations just increasingly don't allow that. So, do you, and are, so are they basically just being forced out then? I mean, or, or is they, I mean, is there? Or are they going to be quiet or, or keeping, there, keeping their head down? Just keeping yeah. their head down. Yeah, they they keep their head down. That's that's basically what it is. Increasingly, okay. Um, Talk about the secularism of Narnia. (laughs) What? (laughs) Whatever. Um, Doug, you started off this whole... I'm sorry, what? (laughs) uh, uh, what, It was a bad joke, but basically the college professor to stay there would have to talk about the secularism of Narnia or something like that. Something that doesn't exist. uh, Where's a good, bad one for me? You done messed up, A.A. Ron! There you go. go. (laughs) Um, So, Doug, we, we asked the question at the very beginning, you know, how did this COVID insanity happen? And you just kind of went right into education. Why not go right into the church? Well, uh, the church is behind, basically, education cannot function unless there's a supportive church community, if education as it ought to be. So the, um, the, there's a, a lot of um, things going on here, a lot of currents. But um, the church in America in the early 19th century started abandoning its robust world and life view and started adopting let's um, um, rapture fever excitement is that the second great awakening uh, no uh, well the second great awakening was around that time mm-hmm. but i'm talking about the prophecy conferences that started around that time and uh and christians in north america started thinking of the world as god's vietnam mm-hmm. and he got kind of bogged down in a land war here and Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to have, uh, he's going to evacuate Saigon yeah. uh, and fly us out of here. So uh, Christians, prior prior to this time, Christians uh, believed that the Christian faith applied to every area of life. Mm-hmm. 
And in North America, we became dualistic, where we believed that the, the theology applied to church and worship and applied to keeping your own ethical nose clean. Right. And that was it. So let me interrupt you here real quick because I want to go back just a little further. You know, we had the first Great Awakening in a lot of ways that that's what gave us the the um, uh, cultural you know courage to fight the America War for Independence, right? Right. Um, and then after that, we kind of get into the 1800s, where you're the early 19th century, where we're at. Um, how did we go from that kind of you know Great Awakening to that kind of people that fought for independence to all of a sudden prophecy land? The first Great Awakening was God centered. Uh-huh. Men like Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield. It was um, even though it did some damage to ecclesiastical structures and mm-hmm. and didn't value the institutional church as much as I would have liked it to mm-hmm. have. It was still a God-centered movement, and lots and lots of people got really converted. The second Great Awakening, represented by men like Charles Finney, mm-hmm. was much more man-centered. It, it was Charles Finney said you could, he taught that you could just uh, apply my methods and you will have a revival. Mm-hmm. Like we could whistle God up. Yeah. And the revivalistic tradition in American evangelicalism goes back to that. So there was genuine revival in the first Great Awakening, and revivalism started to take root in the second Great uh, the Second Great Awakening. And there were other events going on that disrupted everything, and uh, the Civil War and things yeah. like that. It just seems but, like a generation or so after the first Great Awakening, you get courage and faithfulness, and then within maybe another generation. We're getting weakness and you know a desire for to meet my emotions and prophecy and so, all these things. So um, in Deuter- this is all in Deuteronomy. <laughs> um, uh, Jeshuun waxed fat and kicked, mm-hmm. um, and Cotton Mather, one of our early colonial fathers, right. said that yeah. faithfulness begat prosperity, and the daughter devoured the mother. Message. <laughs> and so in Deuteronomy eight. You, yeah. you come into the land, you get all these houses that you didn't build and wells you didn't dig right. and vineyards you didn't plant. Right. And then you look out over it all and you say, my hand has gotten me this wealth. Right. So Americans became wealthier than anybody else in the world by about 1740. Wow. Hmm. Okay. So in terms of the uh, standard of living, mm-hmm. uh, uh, America was, had... We won Powerball basically wow. when it when it comes to the demographic layout, the mm-hmm. geographic layout. All of, you know, we were just greatly, greatly blessed. And what happened was we were seduced by Mammon. Mm-hmm. All right, so faithfulness begat prosperity, and the daughter devoured the mother. Christians checked out, yeah. so they there were lots of us, lots of evangelical Christians, but they were mostly concentrating on. Theology and worship, you know, detached worship. Mm-hmm. Like we were driving with the clutch in. Mm-hmm. You know, we were racing the engine, but the clutch was in. Right. Uh, and the historic reform faith lets the clutch out. It connects the engine to the drivetrain and the wheels, and the car goes. Yeah. And so what we did is uh, Christians, who were very numerous, detached themselves. If you have a robust church community and a, um, a healthy school system, the church system feeds and nourishes the school system. But if you remove the church, the, the school is going to atrophy. Yeah. So you, you can see this in reverse. And I've noticed this as we've been involved in the classical Christian school resurgence. Right. If, let's say you've got a group of parents who 
They've, their kids have seen one drug deal too many, one condom in the classroom too many. One transgendered in the bathroom one, too one, many. One yeah, too right. many. Yeah. And so they, they get together with a group of parents and they say, we're out of here and we're going to start, um, you know, the, our classical Christian, Christian school. Uh, yeah. We're going to start a classical Christian school. So you open up September 1st and they've been for the last 20 years, they've been going to church for once a week to hear a sermon, a, a sermonette for Christianettes. Yeah, <laughs> right. a little 20-minute little snippet, yeah. which is basically a TED Talk with Bible verses. Right. right. Okay. So they, they've been, that's their steady diet. Mm-hmm. Then they open up this Christian school, and they've got all these rows of children, 30 of them, in the classroom that were there 8 o'clock Monday morning, and they're going to be there all day, and they're going to be there all week mm-hmm. for the next nine months. Right. And then after the summer, they're going to do it again. And for you have 12 to, years. For 12 yeah. years. And you have yeah. to have something to say. <laughs> you, you can't take that 20 minutes of inspirational thought and spread it out like pie dough. It's the <laughs> farther you spread it, the thinner it gets. Right. You have to have a robust Christian worldview. Because if you just regurgitate what the government schools are doing, everybody knows, well, that doesn't make sense because that, we just left them. Man. We don't want to do what they're doing, but if we try to apply all of Christ for all of life, we don't know how to do it. Right. So you have to then recover um, a supporting church, a church community where the theology of engagement across the board is unashamedly taught, and the and the teachers can be encouraged and admonished and exhilarated and go in there saying, "I've got something to say." The Bible's a big book. Uh, church history is a huge terrain. Right. We, we can we can talk to these kids for twelve years. We can do that. So yeah. so it seems like putting this together, if we got so if Big Ed is a major contributing factor to creating a bunch of docile citizens that will go along with Big COVID and and the, and the shutdowns, you're saying that behind that Big Ed was Big Eva. Yes, in in a, in a, in a, in a turn of phrase that you know that there's this there's this. Um, uh, dualistic, Gnostic um, Christianity that's focused on sermonettes, feel good, um, this uh, 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 sentimentalized form of Christianity that doesn't touch down to the real world, doesn't take all of Christ for all of life. If we, is, is that a good like summary of Big Eva? Yeah. So one, this was a striking moment. I was a friend of mine uh, back in the day was with the campus. Um, evangelistic organization. This yeah. was 30 years ago, probably. And he was becoming reformed. And it was shortly, I think after, uh, shortly after I had, it was b- back in the day. And, uh, he showed me a, an evangelistic survey. They would, they'd go around to students and they'd say, are you concerned about pollution and, and nuclear war and all these problems? And that on the survey, um, it was, Jesus is the answer to all these things. And I said to him, okay, what's the answer to these things? Jesus provides the answer to all these problems. What are are they? Uh, (laughs) Well, the only problem, that whole list was only aimed at the personal anxiety of the person you were talking to about all these political issues. Right. There was nothing about what the Bible about the, what the Bible yeah. taught about right. nuclear war, about what the Bible taught about the banking crisis or whatever. Um, wow. but 
it ought to. The Bible addresses everything. Mm-hmm. So, so big Eva, it, re, it can't answer those questions, refuses to answer those questions. It has chosen not to. Yeah. So big Eva, the conference, just talk about the conference circuit right. and the approved publications and so forth. They either pull their punch or they, um, or they keep in, in a very narrow lane. Yeah. So, so the, the lane is, what do we think about soteriology? Right. Or what do we right. think about the holiness of God? The holiness right. of God, right. Right. and we and that's what we talk about, right. and how that applies to your personal life and your mm-hmm. devotional life. And maybe when they're really brave, your family, correct? Uh, and that's rare. Yeah, right, right. right. That's rare because so it's getting it, political now. Yeah, because if you went out to the town council and you talked to, about how to engage, you know, love your neighbor, how to get involved in the political world, the cultural world, the world of the arts, economics. Uh, whoa, 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 whoa! We want to focus on the gospel, right? right. Uh, and and that's a deliberate choice that has necessitated an anemic response on the part of all the churches that are dependent on these national leaders. But why should why should why should we be distracted? Why shouldn't we care more about the gospel than about economics? Why why should we let you know the world distract us from the gospel? Well, because the gospel is the engine, and we need to let the clutch out. The the gospel wants to take the car somewhere. Yeah, it, it's not like can we make the the tachometer bounce off the right side mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and vroom 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 and it doesn't go anywhere. Right, um, and that's what we're doing. And that's, so, and that's not the Gnosticism. So that, that, that's at play. So that explains a lot of like so bad theology where you're having you know I don't know revivals every night the the camp meeting the tent meetings. Um, a h- hardcore rapture theology. We're, this is this is God's Vietnam. We're about to get raptured out of here any minute, you know. So that explains that. But but what about the? I mean, a lot of um, big Eva over the last twenty years has actually been led by a lot of Calvinists. I mean, they, they you know they believe in the sovereignty of God and and quote John Calvin and so. I mean, you know, Gospel Coalition and this kind of thing. Yeah, they're they're Calvinistics. They're Calvinistic in their soteriology, right? Um, but they're not. It's not a reformed world and life view, hmm. because John Calvin was advising the uh, city council of Geneva right. on things like sanitation, and he was out in the street breaking up fights, and he mm-hmm. was engaged in uh, the day to day hurly burly of right. everything. And uh, the the modern. Uh, Calvinistic resurgence, which I think is very good so far as it goes. I'm all about it. But it needs to, in order to be historically Calvinistic, uh, the, the God of Calvinism is an in-your-face God. Mm-hmm. He doesn't leave you alone any in anything that you're doing. That doesn't sound very nice. No, it doesn't. <laughs> that's, why, that's why people don't like it. Do you think that's a two-kingdom thing? Like that... The, yeah, the, the, two Cal- ki- the Calvinism that we're getting in Big Eva is a two kingdom Calvinism. Yes. What does that? What do you mean by that, Ben? By two kingdom? Yeah. Oh, just the the idea that basically you have you have two kingdoms. You have God up there, and then you have this world that we're in. Got it. And and our, our hearts kind of connect, but but that kingdom does not intrude on this kingdom. And that's really where Jesus spiritual. So, Jesus is really king up there in the that, spiritual. Yeah, kingdom. that line. That line. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Yeah. Don't do that. <laughs> Not really. Yeah, right. Uh, um, okay. So uh, to quote your son again, uh, Doug, um, Nate, uh, I think he's talking at a Grace Agenda conference um, a couple years ago and talking about kind of 
how we we should not be clinging on to institutional to institutions for institutional sake. And and he right. gave kind of the metaphor of like, you know, an institution is like a pirate ship and that that pirate ship is good as long as it keeps you afloat, but you use and that pirate and ship. And it's attacking It's attacking enemies. as long as it's floating and attacking enemies. But once, if it's just floating, then get off it. You know, go, right. go to the next institution. It seems like with Big Eva, Big Education, yeah. like we're at the point where we're, a lot of people are just trying to prop it up. There's, there's nothing you can do to use a scriptural uh, metaphor for this phenomenon. There's nothing you can do to keep wineskins from getting old. That's right. All right, the wineskins are going to get old, and the new wine is going to burst them, right? Mm -hmm. So when in God's pattern of Reformation and Revival, which is a cyclic pattern down through church, all of church history, um, uh, I believe in the institutional church. I'm a churchman. I, I believe that the church is a divinely inspired, uh, instituted institution, but that's not the same thing as saying this denominational corner is a divinely inspired institution. Mm-hmm. So the spirit moves, right? The, mm-hmm. the spirit doesn't always occupy the same place. It blows where it wishes. So in the 17th century, the spirit was with the Puritans, and they did a wo- wonderful, marvelous work. And then uh, many of them were chased out. Many of them came to America. Uh, the, they became a small, beleaguered group of dissenters. They had one uh, guy, Matthew Henry, was one of the lone voices still operating, and they were beleaguered, outgunned, outnumbered, and kind of discouraged. And then God raised up George Whitfield, uh, an Anglican preacher, itinerant preacher, which nobody saw coming. Right. Right. <laughs> what? <laughs> Anglicans can do this? I think the, the thing is, is institutions are like, um, they're like weapons of warfare. They're like battleships or tanks. They're, they're, they're wonderful things if you're ready to take it into battle. But anything you take into battle, you have to be ready to lose. And so I think that's why Jesus tells us we have to take up our cross daily. That's really good. Yeah. At any given moment, mm-hmm. you can lose it all because of your faithfulness. And I think the thing is, when you spend a lot of time building an institution, you get quite proud of your work. And the idea of, you know, the, the kinds of decisions that are put in front of Christian colleges where it's like, um, you know, be faithful on this question or lose all your funding. If you've spent 30 years building this institution, you've got the ivy on the walls and all that, it's really, you're always trying to figure out, well, is there a way that I can still get the money and be mostly faithful? Like, what's the, what's the move I can make that doesn't cost me this institution? Right. And I, I think that, um, we have to remember it's the, it's the spirit's job, not ours to make these things happen. It actually probably goes back to that first awakening, second awakening. Right. Is this God's work or is this ours that we're trying to uh, win with? In, um, Harvard was captured by the bad guys in 1805. It was established. It had a good run. It was established in, I think, 1636, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, it was established and had a good run, but it was captured by the bad guys in 1805. And some of the Puritans founded Yale because they were worried about Harvard. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dartmouth, Brown, uh, uh, Princeton, mm-hmm. uh, you know, these, these were all founded by Christians. Right. And every one of the, and a lot of the other private schools as well, there's a long line of them. Yeah. At every one of these faithless institutions now that was founded as a Christian institution of higher learning, there was a fatal board meeting yeah. At, yeah. at some point in their history where they decided that continued existence was better than 
going out of existence faithfulness. faithfully. So, so, so let me let me interrupt you there. Then, um, you, Doug, you've built a lot of institutions: Moscow, NSA, ACCS, um, Logos, and so forth. He didn't build Moscow, he, he, even though people I say he in, did. I meant in Moscow. So, <laughs> um, you know, what, what are those? What are those? You know, triggers where you're just like, okay, God, I'm going to let you take this and burn it all down. I'm not. I'm not going to try to push this institution any further. I will tell you one. Factoid about Moscow. Okay. I, just, I just recently, within the last year or so, read a history of Moscow, the lovely little town. It was founded in the 1880s. And I realized that I've lived in Moscow for a third of its existence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> what am I supposed to do with that? Yeah. Is it, <laughs> say, it's neat. Uh, it, it's, it's, it, it's just a neat fact. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> I got there right after the pig. <laughs> Tied it in. Yeah. So, um, the uh, when when you build these institutions, you have to anticipate put in firewalls. Because you, you know that you're building an institution that's in this, in this world. It's under the sun. Mm-hmm. It's subject to futility. Mm-hmm. I don't believe, I don't have as an axiomatic, uh, belief that NSA is going to be going on faithful as ever 2000 years from now. Right. Right. But I do want to put in as many firewalls as I can think of to learn the lessons from past institutional f- failures. Mm-hmm. So when Ben mentioned we, uh, don't, take federal money, uh, that decision was made back when the idea of getting federal money was a joke. Yeah. It, that we wouldn't have been, you know, we, the first year we were four <laughs> students around a kitchen table, mm-hmm. and we wouldn't have known how No, to, uh, no federal grant's going to give to that. Nobody, yeah, nobody was going to give us anything. I don't know. They might give, now they're giving to everybody. Now, now they will. Now they would. If you had sleeping pods in that same house, it might, you know. But, so the, the point was we made a principled decision on the basis of what happened to other schools, mm-hmm. not on the basis of what we thought might happen to us in the next two years. Mm-hmm. So the issue, um, when the issues of started presenting themselves of what are we going to do, we were 15, 20 years into the, uh, into the history of the school, and we had baked into the DNA certain firewalls. Mm-hmm. We're, not, we're not going to do certain things. Mm-hmm. So, Ben, how are you thinking about New St. Anderson regarding this? Um, you know, because you know right now you could easily flip the switch and get all the money you want from the government and build a lazy river in Moscow and you know, build all the student amenities, basketball gym and all that for the college if you just flip that government switch. Um, now that that's off the table... What are um, what makes you nervous? What what um, get your hairs going in the back of your neck and thinking like if NSA does this, we're done. Does that make sense? Like, right. what are some of those triggers? What are some of the pitfalls that NSA could get into? Even though you guys had studied the foundation pretty well, yeah. They're, well, there there are always um, there are a million and one different ways in which the government can enforce something on you. So, for instance, we are a nonprofit. Um, you know, if you want to five hundred one c three, yeah, five hundred one c three. If you want to give to uh, give a gift to NSA, it's uh, tax deductible. They could take that away. Uh, and then that really that tends to shut down your your fundraising um, accreditation ability to grant degrees. There are any number of different ways in which you can um, inflict significant damage on it. But I think that um, I would say though, um, okay, to to be scared to take your your institution into conflict, I think is that that's yeah. the failure we want to look out for. That would yeah. be you know building your battleship and then being scared to take it out. But I do think that. 
being scared to build your battleship, you know, be, being um, being a quitter before you've even built the institution right. is just another version of that. Yeah. So, um, so I think faithfulness means we need to build the institutions, and then the second we build it, we need to take it into battle. Right. We need to actually and be willing to lose them. Yeah. You 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 got to be ready to to lose it, but you've got to not quit at the beginning right. and not build right. it. And so, so, so I, I think that it, there's. There's two things. I think you have to give everything to building it and then be ready for everything to be taken away when God wants to. So um, it, we're going to open this up for I, Q&A I wanna here. Just, I wanna okay. just, we'll do a Q&A. Just yep. a second. Let me, you'll, you'll get your question. Okay. I want to, I want to ask a question. I'm going yep, to say something. So as you guys are thinking. I don't want to ask a question. As you guys are thinking, um, Gene is going to have the mic and he'll go around. Uh, so just raise your hand. Gene will go around. And while Toby's answering the question, start thinking. Go. <laughs> I want to, I just, I just think the thing that, that's really, I think, helpful about what you're saying, Ben, about that issue, that we need to be brave enough to make build the institution, That's right. don't give up in yeah. the process, and then being willing to, Lord, I'm going to take this into battle, and if you give us the victory, praise the Lord, and for however long you give us the victory, praise the Lord, and if at some time it gets shot out from underneath me, praise the Lord. Um, and then, but the turn is, I'm going to go build another one. Right. I mean, like what, like we need to be builders, starters. That's and, right. and that's the thing that I think sometimes back to, it's funny how this connects with the first and second great awakening, but it's like, so long as the spirit is in the boat, so long as Jesus is in the boat, that's nothing right. can sink it. Right. So long as the spirit is with us, then we're winning. And it's, if the spirit is doing it, then you're going to win no matter what you're doing. We're more than conquerors. Whatever they do, we're winning. Right. Mm -hmm. And then, but by the same token, as soon as Jesus says, ah, this has been a good run guys, uh, and, and let it go, let it burn. Um, you know, he's in the business of building new boats. And, and so we should be the kind of people because the spirit is at work thinking, um, I need to start a school. I need to start a church. I need to start a business. I need to start something. And don't look at the big institutions and think we could never go up against them. What are you talking about? If Christ is with you, if the Spirit is in the work, you've, there's more with you than is with them. And, and don't forget the fact that what we call losses, we, we shouldn't lose right. on purpose. Right. We should be willing to lose, but not lose on purpose. Mm. And, and, but never forget that what we call losses frequently aren't. The greatest, the greatest triumph in the history of the kingdom of God was the crucifixion of Jesus, Amen. which did not look like a triumph right. at the time. And the great Herbert Schlossberg said that the kingdom of God has advanced from triumph to triumph to triumph, all of them cleverly dis disguised as disasters. Mm. Right, right. Amen. But, but, the, but the whole like too big to fail thing, I think, applies to this whole thing. Big government, big Kova, big Ed, big Eva, all of it, is, it's propped up by hubris. It's propped mm -hmm. up by human pride. And pride goes before the fall. And, but, and God puts down the proud, and he lifts up the humble. That's all we need. That's all we need. And so the humble who just say, all right, Lord, this is what I've got. I'm going to, I'm going to build a faithful family. I'm going to build a faithful family business. I'm going to, I'm going to start a school. I'm going to be faithful here at church. We're going to worship you. We're not going in for the glitz and the glamour. We're not doing, we're just going to be faithful. God lifts up the humble and he exalts them over Amen. the proud. Amen. I feel God right there. Yep. So, uh, Gene, if you want to stand up, it looks like there's a couple hands going up already. Yeah, and uh, thanks for introducing Ben, but you didn't introduce... Pastor Doug goes without introduction. We, we, didn't, we didn't want any protests. He, he's been on MSNBC, Gene. 
This is Pastor Doug Wilson of Christ Church Moscow, people. <laughs> yes, yes. Good evening. I have a potentially three-part question here, depending on how you answer them. Uh, whoa, whoa. They're, they're short, I think. Uh, the first one is, do you believe that there is a hollowing out of the middle class in, in the United States? Yes. It, <laughs> is, is this a trick question? No, no, not at all. It, it, you'll see where I'm, I'm leading here in a minute, depending on how you answer it. It was a, what was it again? A hollowing, a hollowing out class. of the middle class. Yeah. Um, the second question then is, is it deliberate? Is it deliberate? Is the hollowing out of the middle class deliberate? I believe he was quick on the first one. Let's see yes. what he I, I, I believe that it is, yes. It is deliberate. Okay. And I, I would agree with both of those. So uh, this leads to the third part of the question, which is as a, as a pastor, Doug, and as an educator, uh, Ben, um, what is, how do you prepare your people or how do you prepare for your institutions for the inevitable consequences of this hollowing out of the middle class, uh, specifically with it, when it comes to things like funding a new church, church building, funding your, your school as it is, uh, even even getting uh, students to pay the whatever reasonable or unreasonable, depending on your finances, to send your children to NSA. So I would flip it around the other way. So not only does the government have colleges, private colleges over a barrel, they also have the private citizen over a barrel. Right, And they have private citizens over a barrel because they've been educated, most of them, in a system that taught them to be docile and go along and color inside the lines and do what you're told and just fill out your tax form and send whatever the – do the math and send it in. Um, uh, What we want to do is train um, uh, students to graduate so that they are uh, shapers of culture that they're not just passive recipients of whatever's being dished out. So uh, I think behind your question is, if the middle class is being hollowed out, how can they afford to send their kids to NSA, right? I I would flip it around and say, if we graduate enough kids from NSA, they're going to become a real threat because they're not going to be docile. They're not going to be tame. They're they're going to be independent thinkers, and they're going to start sending their kids to NSA having – um, made their way in in a, a very hostile world. So uh, the middle class that's being hollowed out is putting up with it. Mm-hmm. And they, they're putting mm-hmm. up with it because they were educated a certain way. We want our graduates to be productive, thriving members of society who know how to make their way in a hostile world. That's, that's what we're up to. I would just add to that is I think – um, Christian community is a big part of the answer. And I, by that, I don't mean just potlucks after church on Sunday. I mean Christians worshiping together, doing business together, living together, um, building together. Um, but because there's, it's, it's not just nice, it's potent. It's, it's not just wonderful to be able to look through a, a, um, a business directory and I can call people that do almost anything in my church. Um, and not that that's some kind of utopia. We're all sinners and people make mistakes and there's snarls and stuff there. But I would say there is a, there is real potency to Christians pulling together all in the same direction and using their gifts. And you, again, you, you hear gifts and you think, well, you know, I'm the greeter and I hand out the bulletins and I help serve communion. And those are great gifts and all. But I'm talking about plumbers and electricians 
and I'm talking about people who build things, and you know those that as well, those that kind of vocational diversity, where you have a small town in the making in the city, a city within the city, uh, which is what the church is called to be. There's real potency there, and again, and I would say, but it has to start small. It has to start really small, and it's just being faithful, and it's sacrificing. It's laying your life down. Doug can tell you stories about how Logos started, and mm-hmm. um, and we're, and it's still that way in certain respects. As, as much as it's been, we've been blessed in Moscow, teachers at Logos School are still sacrificing. Um, giving parents are still sacrificing, still volunteering. Um, there's still people saying, look, we're going to make this happen even though you can't afford it. There's, it's, there's policies of we're going to lay our lives down for each other, sacrifice, bleed, get less sleep, um, take a second job, whatever it takes for one another because more caffeine, more coffee. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But it's, but it's, it's the body of Christ laying your life down saying, I don't need credit for it. I don't need the glory for it. Here's how I can give. Here's what Jesus has given me to give and pour it out. And, and then Jesus multiplies it. You know, on that that question of like gathering together as a community in Calvin's Geneva, when a baby was baptized in that church, and the congregation said "Amen" as part of the charge. Sorry, the congregation said "Amen." Implicit in that "Amen" was a mutual commitment to fund that child's Christian education, (laughs) and and it was an understanding that this is what we're all in for. Calvin himself personally funded. um, He took a number of God children, each of whom. He made sure that they had a Christian education. He personally contributed financially to make sure it happened. When you, when you have a community that actually gets together on it, I do think that, well, let me back up a little bit. A lot of people look at Moscow as something that's kind of significant that is happening there. And I'll talk about Doug for a moment. It's interesting how many of the, the sort of big name, um, Bloggers, preachers, and whatnot, you tend to know them as a person, but when you talk about Doug, you tend to know him as a town, and you associate Doug with (laughs) Moscow. (laughs) And I think the reason is because early on, the beginning of the ministry was the founding of Logos School, and then the founding of New St. Andrews, because what happened was it took a ministry and turned it into an enculturation, and that actually created an entire community around it, and I think that that's a really, really significant move. And I think that that all of a sudden creates a class of people that are not manipulated and controlled in the way that we've been describing. And it actually does create that middle class that we're scared of being hollowed out. Well, I think, I think the importance of building a community is that you, um, it can be so discouraging if you feel like you're trying to take on the federal government. Um, or you're trying to take on even your state government. Like, wow, that's, a, that's a big Goliath. But when you're, when all of a sudden you focus on building community, I mean, look what Pastor Wilson's accomplished in 40 years. You know, look how fast the government kind of took over some of our institutions. Look how fast they got transgender bathrooms in schools. I mean, we blinked and it was there. But our, I remember our executive pastor, Ben, ben Zorns, um, did the math on, in an exhortation. He said, you know, if you had four faithful children and then your kids had four faithful children, got married, had four faithful children, and then those kids had got married and, you know, and then you kind of just exponentially do the math for the, from there. In 150 years, I think the numbers were basically you'd have 300 to 400,000 grandkids walking around in Idaho. Well, all, all you need in Idaho to get a um, governor elected is like 200,000 votes. You know, 250,000 votes. And so all of a sudden, if, if, you, if you focus on building community, well, that, that it, it changes your calculation and changes the reality 
of what you're able to accomplish with the, you know, given the work of Christ in your life and through your family, it, it changes everything and it, it becomes a lot more encouraging. And of course, that's just post mill theology is really what it comes down to. So. More questions? So recently, the uh, Biden administration um, forgave a bunch of debt. And so my question is for uh, Dr. Merkel. Do you foresee that happening? He's against it. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, do, do you foresee that happening again and again? And do you, how, do you, how do you see that changing higher ed going so, forward? Yeah, my, my prediction would be, I, I think um, rhetorically that's tough to just keep on doing. I just don't know how you can do that and make any kind of sense. And even though our government does seem to float on nonsense, I think that even... <laughs> That one is probably a little bit too much. My <laughs> prediction would be um, this student loan forgiveness will be leveraged into doubling or maybe even more uh, the Pell Grant. So, so um, because student loan forgiveness, uh, by definition, has to look backwards. They need to shift into um, something that is either current or looking forward. And the Pell Grant uh, answers that. So I think that we'll see the Pell Grant probably at the very least doubled and student loan forgiveness will be a major piece of the argument for why we need to do this. You just did that for everybody there. What are we going to do for them? You're going to double your Pell Grant. Little brother gets that argument. Little, that? little brother starts complaining. Hey, you just forgave my big brother. Yeah. I want, right. I want. And, but there's, because we're finite and we're not the lords of the earth that we think we are. Um, Two quotes. One is that Margaret Thatcher said the problem with socialism is that sooner or later you run out of other people's money. <laughs> gravy trains, gravy trains can't go on forever. And then Herbert Stein, the economist, uh, came up with Stein's law. He said anything that cannot continue on indefinitely won't. <laughs> ben, I have two follow-up questions. To that Ben doesn't if you double the Pell grants. Doesn't that just double tuition or something like that? Well, in, uh, in, in a right. couple years, um, there is uh, yeah. Th- there's a strong argument to be made that what will happen is colleges will just then they're like more money. <laughs> will, yeah, because uh, yeah. So um, colleges are still kind of businesses, and you know one of the main rules of business is you never leave money on the table. So if you come to buy right. a, a car from me and I was going to sell it for ten grand, but I found out that you came with twenty grand in cash, right. suddenly, yeah, then I, I'm, you know, the price just went up yeah. um, because I don't want to leave money on the table. Right. And so colleges, as um, as twi- or as um, federal money increases, student loans or Pell grants or whatever, when those increase, then colleges will raise tuition. There's um, William Bennett is famous for the Bennett hypothesis, which is that basically he had some calculation for whenever the federal government raises their money in federal funding, college tuition will increase by this amount, right. um, which is I, I think pretty obviously what's going to happen. There was like a, a ten grand uh, tax break announced for electric vehicles, and right on schedule within the next week, all the prices went up like 7,500, yeah. 10 grand or whatever. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, my other question maybe for you, Doug is um, for those people out there who have student loans, what if, if there is a, a debt forgiveness thing that comes through with Biden, knowing that um, they borrowed the money, they should pay it back. Um, it's being taken from other people at the same time. They know that, well, I guess I'm going to pay it back my own way, you know, one way or the other paying back the, the loan or I'm going to pay it back in additional taxes for all of us. What's your pastoral counsel to the offer of debt forgiveness? This is a rule of thumb, not a legalistic 
rule for every each and every situation. But as the rule of thumb, if Christians are chafing under tyranny, as as I see more and more of, we're chafing under tyranny, and we want out, then we need to learn the spiritual discipline of refusing the benefits first of tyranny. The, yeah, the yeah. benefit. The, there's a bribe, and there's a, there's a stick and a and a carrot, and we need to start refusing the carrots first. Um, instead of objecting when the bill comes due, we should be uh, doing everything we can to decline the offered benefit that they're using to buy my allegiance or buy my lack of opposition or whatever. So uh, I would say if you have student loans and you are eligible to have them canceled, uh, I would encourage you to pay them off anyway. I believe as it is right now, you have to actually apply for the forgiveness. So you simply should need to not apply. I'm, I'm getting phone calls. I, my debt's been paid off from, from going to college and everything, but I'm getting phone calls from the government saying, Hey, you want asking, asking for to apply basically. I mean, it's, it's incredible. I've been, I'm 43 years old. That happened a long time ago. So <laughs> not that long. <laughs> Other questions? There's a question over here. Uh, so there was talk about building authentic Christian communities that support itself, and we kind of do this all together and give business to one another and all that. Um, and it seems like it's working great in Moscow. Um, what is the first piece of advice you would give to a local congregation in a place where that hasn't really taken root yet for pastors to start telling to those con- congregations what they can do to start building that? community like what are those moscow mustard seeds that they can plant you know to start that in their community it's it's not just uh teaching the people to uh, do business with fellow believers but i think it would be that has to be conjoined with the willingness on the part of the session of elders the pastor to get involved in the nitty-gritty of untangling business snarls which will happen right uh the the born again cabinet maker put them in upside down and <laughs> and you're both in the same church, and what do we do now? Well, that's First Corinthians six. We have to learn. Basically, we have to put on our big boy pants. We have to realize that building community is not a walk in the meadow. It's not just sunshiny stuff. It's it's dealing with the angular edges that all of us have, and that means we really have to be willing to get into the difficult situations, uh, sometimes confrontations, sometimes admonitions, sometimes forgiveness. You know, it it varies. But there has to be, a, I think, a church or churches where that kind of willingness and diligent pastoral care is backing up the parishioners' desire to be involved in one another's lives. Because when you get involved in one another's lives, the first thing that will happen is a problem. I would, I would add to that, you know, Gabe, you did that hypothetical of you have four kids and they each have four kids, whatever. That math only works. Um, and that is, that is the math that has to drive something like this, but that math only works if the kids like their parents. 
Um, and, right. and so I would say the um, love and affection and faithfulness between parents and kids, um, the gospel is intended to be generational, but we need to live it out in a generational kind of way. And when you do, that's when all the blessings come. When, so when I look at Moscow and see, you know, I, I became a part of Christ Church, I think, in 96. So that's already, when did you plant originally? 75. 75. So when I, when I joined in 96, it was about this size. Um, so from 75 to 96, this is still what it looked like. And that's also mm. being built on the back of Jim Wilson, Doug's uh, dad's ministry. So we were really into, well into third generation when it really wow. started to explode. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think you have to have the long view. But it's you can't get the long view unless you get parent or kids that like their parents. And as I look at Moscow and see the growth that I've seen, the explosion from this size to where we are now, almost all of it comes because of um, basically kids that want to stay around their parents or parents that want to move to where their kids are. Um, and it's it's all been that kind of uh, love and affection between generations that mm. has really made it explode. And that's why it it takes a long time and it has to be really truly honest and sincere um i think that's why the um the the requirement for elders the the um the qualification for being elders having children that want to follow you in your faith that's right because you can as a pastor you can have a, a certain kind of charisma that sweeps a congregation but if you're a different kind of guy at home your kids know and and they rebel they're not going to stick around with it but when you're actually an honest and faithful person and you're truly um like that at home and you love your children and you're like that for oh maybe 60 years in a row then mm-hmm. i think you start to see that kind of of growth Let's add to that too. Just I think the two things I think of is uh, sacrifice and joy, um, like just authentic sacrifice um, in your family, sacrifice in the church, sacrifice with your neighbors, just sacrifice, just gladly giving it away. All my energy, my time, anything that I can give, I give it, and doing it gladly, doing it with great joy. That is very infectious it's very attractive um and and your kids want to be around you your grandkids want to be around you um your neighbors like people people want to be around you you give and you're just glad you give and you're happy you don't you don't keep a bunch of um points you're not trying to get kudos you're not trying to get um people to pat you on the back i would say in a certain sense um it's you almost need the, the the community the healthy community is the byproduct of it and and there's a certain way of trying to grasp for the community and it'll just it's going to go right out of your hands but if you say lord this is what you've given me and i'm going to give it all away i'm going to spend right. it all for you and you do with it whatever you will and you just do it whistling the whole time just you know just mm-hmm. glad mm-hmm. and cuz jesus is king and i'm going to be with him forever um, you can lay it all out like that and lay it all down and let the Lord raise it up and make it fruitful in its own way. And, but you can't, it's sort of, that's death and resurrection. And, and you just have to be good with that. Just, and not just good with it, but really excited about it. I get to spend my life and lose it all. And then Jesus is going to raise it up and that's make right. something amazing out of it. You know, and, and to Ben's point about it being hard, part of that is just recognizing where you're at in the story and where God has you in your, your town, your community, whatever. I remember, 
Um, my dad was just a blue collar worker, never graduated college, worked at Texas Instruments, and he helped our pastor in, in Texas start a Christian classical school in 92, 93. And I remember dad telling me, he's like, I'll, I'll put your education, your Christian education on my credit card. That, that's how important it is for me. Dad didn't have the money. He didn't have, um, even the, you know, education to do it, but he just started doing it with our pastor. And, and so don't lust after kind of, the big, you know, bling of, of building a community, just work with the tools that God's given you and where you're at. And, and you just might be that blue collar guy that starts a school and, and then you die and you don't get to see the fruit of it all. But that's, that's to Toby's point, just, you know, obey God faithfully where you're at and let God raise that. And it's, it's amazing how God works through, through seeds like that. And just a little FYI here, uh, Doug Wilson is also, uh, one of the significant founders of the classical and Christian school movement. Uh, the River Academy here in Wenatchee just got their ACCS accreditation last November. And a uh, special thing about this year um, is that this is the first year that uh, River Academy has legacy students. So, mm. so there are full-time students there this year, uh, children of parents that graduated from, T, uh, from TRA. In fact, they were um, uh, two people in the first graduating class wow. uh, of the river. And so, so feeding into your question, um, we're, 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 still, we're still early in that, uh, in that cycle that's a little bit more mature down in Moscow, but we need to be praying for that by, by faith. Yeah. yeah. Any other questions? Uh, Doug, question uh, for you. If you, have, if you haven't seen... It on TV. NBC did a meet the press little visit to Moscow. Quick, uh, what did they get right uh, in the finished product, and what did they get seriously wrong? And maybe a couple words about the German crew that came in after that. Uh, what they got right, what I appreciated about the story, is they actually labored hard to let both sides talk. The the piece was about fifteen minutes long, and and uh, our opponents got plenty of airtime, and we got plenty of airtime. The limitation they had is that we were an alien life form to them. Um, like National Geographic. <laughs> it was, it was, Look it, at them. <laughs> they, they, they were nice and pleasant, but they didn't understand us at all. Um, like what? You know, they believe wives <laughs> submit to their husbands. <laughs> yeah, it was true. Um, and it was, they, they really, uh, and if you watch the discussion, that they had a panel discussion after the segment, um, I, I've never seen people so far in a bubble yeah, in my life. I know. Yeah. Um, the, the, their interaction with regular Americans was obviously very limited. And, <laughs> and so that was the, that was the handicap that they were working on. But they, um, they let us, uh, say our piece. And I don't think they understood the import of some of the things that we were saying, but they they made a valiant effort to do that. So I appreciated mm-hmm. that, and that would be my criticism at the at the same time. Last week, or what? Maybe earlier this week, um, a German film, uh, a German television station sent a film crew to Moscow and spent an hour or two walking around with me, talking about what was going on there. And then next month, the BBC is coming. Um, and so what they're trying to do, I think, I think the word has gone out is they're trying to brand us as extremists or, um, as this alien life form. And so that's, 
that's what I think they're trying to frame the discourse or frame the uh, frame the debate. But it's already been tried. Yeah. Them, them branding us, you yeah. know, racist yeah. and all that stuff. Well, that that. But if, for example, I'm thinking of the term Christian nationalist. Um, yeah. That, uh, when they when they interviewed us, I, we didn't use that term. We didn't talk about it. We didn't, you know. Um, but then when the segment came out, it's Christian nationalism. And, really? Really? Okay. So Al Mohler's with Moscow? I, yeah, I, w- I wouldn't have picked that term off of menu myself, but I'm more than happy to work with it. Um, I'm a Christian. This is a nation. <laughs> and we were told to disciple it. So, okay. Okay. So... I think that, that that more and more attention is being shown to us, and it's all preliminary. I think to uh, 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 coming clash or confrontation. Um, so we're prepared for uh, this. Was not a big lie, but I think that there will be. Mm. Uh, I think that there will be some big lies coming at at some point, but not not in this one. It was and, just a setup. And if you uh, if you haven't. If you haven't seen it, I uh, guess you could probably Google, uh, meet the press, uh, Moscow. But uh, need to watch for my favorite part in the in the little um, presentation because they have this little couple that were at Christ Church. They're disgruntled. They're not there anymore. One of the reasons that they're not there is because Christ Church makes women um, wear dresses all the time. No okay. pants. No jeans. No, yeah. Okay. And so then, then the very next picture, okay, is Christ Church singing psalms in front of the courthouse. And all the women are wearing pants. Okay, so it's it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's almost... so we prohibit them, but we're very bad at it. Yeah. <laughs> all right, all right, Gene. Let's let's wrap it up there. It's almost nine o'clock. Okay. So um, just to just to end here, uh, Doug and Ben, and I'll, I'll start with you, Ben. Um, you know, give us kind of your take on you know the the hundred year strategy of what we should be doing. Um, in the next hundred years to, to, to kind of see God work in our communities. Yeah, I think um, I'm kind of just reiterating a, a bunch of what we've already said, which is just build the schools. Um, I, I see um, Christians, conservative Christians, as they get concerned about education, almost all of their moves and all of their impulses are um, retreatist. Uh, they they um, they want to figure out how to pull back, or they'll grant the secular um, colleges uh, claim that you need this degree in order to get that job. So they come up with strategies to try to get through the school with it leaving as little of an imprint on them as possible, so I can get the degree, so I can get the job. And I think it's time that we stop that and we start saying, no, I'm going to build the school. I'm I'm going to build a school whose influence you're scared of. Uh, I, I want to build the 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 institutions that enculturate in the way that we're describing and actually advance. So I think we need to quit being on the retreat mm-hmm. and start being on the advance. Thank you. Build pirate ships. <laughs> Doug. So everybody's heard of John Calvin. Everybody's heard of Martin Luther uh, because God did marvelous things through them uh, in the Great Reformation. So we're all aware of that. But in the 1400s, in the late Middle Ages, uh, there was a monastic movement called the Brethren of the Common Life. And you may have heard of one, probably the one famous uh, participant in the Brethren of the Common Life was a, a gent named uh, Thomas Akempis. So if you've read On the Imitation of Christ, that's Thomas Akempis. He was part of the Brethren of the Common Life. One of the things the Brethren of the Common Life did was they built schools. That was one of their 
things. It was a movement that built schools. And they built schools all over Europe. And virtually all of the reformers graduated from Brethren of Common, mm. Common Life schools. And we've never heard of them. Yeah. Right. So we've heard of the, you know, it's the, who's the fellow that led Billy Graham to the Lord? You know, um, <laughs> or, or, so you have, you, you see the blast uh, radius, you the see, product. you yeah. see the product or the in the impact. Mm-hmm. But whenever there's a big impact like that, go upstream a little bit. Uh, ask what happened. 20 years before that. What happened 50 years before that? Um, so the the exhortation I would leave with you all is a, a quotation I'm fond of repeating from a historian, uh, Christopher Dawson. And he said, the Christian church lives in the light of eternity and can afford to be patient. Right? So the difference between a revolutionary and a reformer is revolutionaries are impatient. Uh, impatience is their middle name. Uh, what do we want? Free healthcare. When do we want it? Now. Uh, what do we want? Time travel. When do we want it? Doesn't matter. <laughs> Excuse me, I got derailed. Uh, about that pig with so, the lipstick. About the pig. Yeah. Uh, so when uh, we we can afford to be patient because we're reformers, not revolutionaries. Revolutionaries always want it now, this instant. And reformers, if they live in the light of eternity, can afford to be patient mm-hmm. and leave the results to God. Um, so Martin Luther didn't know what a big name he was going to be when he nailed the theses on the Wittenberg door. He didn't know that. Um, but that's what, it, it, that's what happened. There were obscure laborers in the vineyard that were the reason why Martin Luther was in that position, and mm-hmm. they don't even show up in footnotes, mm-hmm. but they matter. And mm-hmm. the Lord, uh, the Lord Jesus tells us that if a cup of cold water is not going to be overlooked in the uh, day of judgment, then how much more can we say faithless service over years that's unsung in this life is going to go? Uh, mm. Uh, it's going to be recognized by him. We can we can be assured of that. So basically, um, man proposes, God disposes. We tr- we do uh, we just do the next thing, and uh, seek to be faithful in our station and leave the results to God. Sometimes they're spectacular and we can see them. Sometimes they're spectacular down the road and we'll get to see them from heaven. Home, it's where you build your legacy, where traditions are started, seeds are planted. Meals are shared and stories are told. We are Chris Natalie Carpenter, owners of Story Real Estate, and our team of top agents helps people find homes in Moscow, Idaho, and around the country. Have you thought about a move? Contact us to get connected with a top agent who shares your values and puts your family first. Or reach out to us about our Moscow Relocation Guide. Wherever you're looking to go, we can help you find home. Call us at Story Real Estate or visit us at storyrealestate.com and start building your legacy. Hi, I'm Robert Borton, CEO of Classical Conversations, the world's largest classical Christian homeschooling community. I'm launching a new podcast, Refining Rhetoric. If you like cross-politics or just listen to hear what crazy stuff they're saying today, you will enjoy Refining Rhetoric. You can find us on your favorite podcast platform. I practice the 15 tools of learning by interviewing great guest 
looking at current events and talking about cryptocurrency.